Like I said, we're in the book of Revelation. This is the third message today. The title is Things That Are, the letter to Ephesus. We're in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Uh, you may notice that we're doing something a little different with the sermon notes forms. We realize that some of you love to take notes. Some of you do not at all. And so in order to um, reduce waste and save paper, we're we're going to a little different approach. And they're, the forms are they're generic. They're, they're at the back. And you can pick one of those up if you choose to take notes. I hope you will. In Revelation 1, the Apostle John, now in his 90s, and exiled on the Aegean island of Patmos, heard a voice like a trumpet. Said last week, you didn't hear a trumpet. He heard a voice like a trumpet saying this, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. John, hearing that voice and turning, saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, he saw the risen, ascended, glorified Jesus Christ. And when he saw him, John says he fell down at his feet as though He was dead. Picking it up at verse 17 of chapter 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we saw last week that in verse 19 of chapter 1, Jesus gave to John and to us a basic kind of fundamental outline of all that he was to write. And in essence, an outline, the most basic outline of the book of Revelation. Write, therefore, the things you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place, um, those you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Specifically, the phrase, the things you have seen, corresponds to chapter 1. Those that are, corresponds to chapters 2 and 3, which is where we are turning this morning. And those that are to take place after this point to chapters 4 through 22. So today, as we dive into chapter 2, we're transitioning from the section demarcated by that descriptor, the things that you have seen, chapter 1, to the second section, those that are, chapters 2 and 3. This section contains letters from Jesus to the angels of each of the seven churches in Asia. And again, we saw last week that that word angels in its most basic, most generic form simply means messenger. That's true both in Hebrew and in Greek. Um, And that here in Revelation 1, Jesus is uh, probably speaking uh, not to angels as we think of angels, but instead to the pastors or the elders of each of the seven churches, each of the pastors would read these messages aloud to their churches. 
Just uh, a reminder of where these churches are. We're, we're, uh, there's the Aegean Sea. Uh, John's out here on one of these, one of these islands. I don't remember which one. Uh, doesn't matter. The island of Patmos might be that one right there. But he sends us 40 miles to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. I heard someone say, and I researched it and confirmed it, that this was actually a a mail route, a postal route. And so uh, John goes postal, sends these things uh, to the seven churches according to their postal route. Why, why were these seven churches selected? Uh, given that there there must have been churches in other communities in that region, we actually know that there, there were. Uh, and the answer to that question is we don't know. We don't know. Uh, why these seven churches were selected. In in both verses 11 and 20, the definite article is present. It's not churches or just any seven churches, but instead it's the seven churches. I read a guy who asserted that these were the, the most important seven churches in Asia. That that could be, I don't know. but But I do know that Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say these were. The, he didn't say send this to the most important seven churches in Asia. It's not what he said. He simply called them the seven churches, and then identified them by the cities where they gathered and where they ministered. Notice that John had no say in the matter. This is Jesus' thing. Something he's doing. Jesus is writing the addresses on the envelopes. John, John's just along to record what he sees and hears. We might also ask why seven. Why not six? Why not five? Why not 35? Uh, And again, we don't know. What we do know is that in the Bible, the number seven is the number of fullness or completion, as in the seven days of creation, for example. Six days of creation on the seventh, God rested, having completed all of his work. You might think about the seven uh, deacons in Acts. Uh, Someone pointed out to me between services today that... uh, in, in the rainbow that God created, there, there are seven colors. Pretty cool picture. So there's a, a very real sense in which we might conclude that, that Jesus intends us to understand these seven churches as representative of all of the churches, or we might say of the whole church. At or near e- the end of each of these seven messages, we repeat, or we read a repeated charge. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the churches. In other words, those who hear are, are not uh, to listen carefully and take heed only to what is written to the local church to which they personally belong, but also to the messages sent to the other six as well. And that tells me that all seven messages apply to all the churches and the church of all the ages, and to our church, and to each of us as individual Christians. While we're at it, let's look at the other similarities among the letters, as well as some exceptions or variations. Each letter, first of all, begins with a brief description. And by the way, this maybe will help you as you read these letters to kind of see the structure. Each one begins with a brief description of the one speaking, that is, in every case, Jesus, to the first five churches, those 
descriptions are taken from John's description of the glorified Jesus in chapter 1 to the other two, the um, Philadelphia and Laodicea. The descriptions of Jesus center on things about him that, that will be dis- disclosed later in the book of Revelation. Each letter then includes a commendation of the church that begins with the phrase, I know, I know. Uh, But here's a variation. There are two churches that Jesus does not commend, the church in Sardis and the church in Laodicea. Uh, Commendation is followed by reproof on each occasion. The reproof is preceded by the phrase, but I have this against you. And, and as you read that, you hear a little dun-dun-dun, right? And again, there are two exceptions, two churches whom Jesus does not reprove, to whom he has nothing bad to say, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And then comes instruction. Jesus provides a corrective solution to each church's problem, or in the cases of the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia, instruction for continued faithfulness. To each church, finally, Jesus gives a promise of reward to those who conquer, to those who overcome. Well, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, we read first today the letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus. Ephesus was a, a wealthy seaport city on the Aegean Sea in the Roman province of Asia, uh, modern day Western Turkey. It was a a center of culture, of commerce, of religion. Uh, Ephesus was positioned near several key land routes in Western Asia Minor. It boasted a magnificent harbor. It was a world-class city, at one time considered the most important city and the most important trading center in all of the Mediterranean region. Ephesus was a big deal. It's a very important city. The Agora at Ephesus was legendary. It was laid out in a large square surrounded by marble Roman columns. You you can still see there today stone stalls where merchants would have plied their wares. Um, It was the place to go to, to purchase colorful and fragrant spices, beautiful textiles, fabrics, other items from across the region and, and, and literally from all over the known world and just about everything else that the residents of Ephesus and the surrounding areas might ever need. Joseph Stoll described it as a shopping mall on steroids. And so if you're into malls, God bless you. Much like a a shopping mall today, the Agora became one of the primary places people would go for social interaction. And so maybe that's true of you too. I I prefer Costco because I like to be annoying and get my cart in the way of everybody that's trying to go by. Shoppers would, would enter the Agora by one of three beautiful gates. And at each gate, there would be containers filled with incense. And alongside that container of incense would be a small altar with a wood burning on the altar. And, and so as you arrived at the mall, the Agora, you're, you're going to stop and you're going to pick up a little bit of incense and you're going to throw it on the altar as an act of worship to the emperor. And so one can imagine the difficulty that that presented for Christians in Ephesus. Uh, more than paying taxes, it was an act of worship. 
Two of the gates to the Agora were dedicated by two slaves who were granted their freedom by Caesar Augustus. Uh, their names were Maius and Mithridates. Uh, their names were, are engraved ab- uh, above the arches of the gates along with inscriptions in Latin and Greek uh, dedicating those gates to the emperor Augustus and his family. Um, these guys, after being freed by Augustus, prospered. They became very wealthy. And uh, so an English translation of what you're seeing there would read something like, For Emperor Caesar Augustus, the son of the god Pontifex Maximus, who was consul 12 times and tribune 20 times, and Livia, wife of Caesar Augustus, Mark Agrippa, the son of Lucius, who was consul three times and tribune six times, and Julia, daughter of Caesar Augustus, Maius and Mithridates, to their master and the people. Virtually everywhere one looked in Ephesus were idols uh, to greater and lesser deities. Uh, Idolatry was pervasive in Ephesus. It was ubiquitous. It was always in your face. The city boasted 14 temples, count them 14, to pagan gods and goddesses, but none rivaled the temple of, of Artemis who was the goddess of fertility and life. It was built in the fourth century. It was massive. It was wider than a football field. It was half again as long as a football field, so 150 yards. Its roof was held up by no less than 127 massive marble columns. There was a guy named Antipater from Thessalonica who recorded his impression of the Temple of Artemis in these words, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, The sun never looked on aught so grand. And not only the residents of Ephesus, but but, uh, people all across the Roman Empire worshipped Artemis. Uh, The Greeks knew her as Diana. Uh, The temple of Artemis employed hundreds, literally hundreds, uh, of male and female prostitutes. Her worship involved frenzied, drunken orgies. And when the gospel of Jesus Christ that was preached by Paul and his team began to significantly impact uh, the religious life and in turn the economy of Ephesus, you'll recall that a a major riot broke out that ended up in the 20,000-seat theater with the residents chanting for two entire hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Along with the worship of pagan deities and even in some ways overshadowing it was imperial cult worship, that is the worship of the emperor, as I mentioned earlier. At the highest point in the urban center stood the temple to the emperor Domitian and in front of that an intimidating 50-foot statue of Domitian with his fist raised in the air. And uh, that's all that's left of it. But if you can picture, you can't see the scale there because uh, you can't see the whole thing, but imagine 50 feet. 
How tall is this ceiling, Evan? 20. So uh, two and a half times this height. Interestingly, the, the statue of Domitian was held up by idols of the other gods and goddesses of the Roman pantheon. So even Zeus, who was kind of at the pinnacle of the pantheon, was subordinated to Domitian in this representation. He was known as uh, one of the most brutal Roman emperors. He was also one of the greatest persecutors of the church. During his reign, he persecuted Christians in Roman cities all across the empire. Uh, He claimed for himself and for his son the status of a god. He used for himself terms like savior and lord and master. Uh, Historians indicate that it was Domitian who exiled John the apostle to the island of Patmos because he wouldn't shut up about Jesus and he wouldn't stop teaching the word of God. Uh, Domitian was eventually uh, assassinated in 96 AD by one of his servants. And when um, the Ephesians learned of his death, they celebrated uh, by taking down the statue, by erasing Domitian's name from inscriptions all around the city. And in order not to lose their favorable status with Rome, they they quickly rededicated the whole temple uh, of Domitian to his father, who had been emperor before Vespasian. To top it all off, and and not surprisingly, the the city was the center of intense demonic activity. You may recall that it was in Ephesus that that Paul encountered those seven sons of Sceva, those those Jewish exorcists. Uh, And it was in Ephesus that so many in the occult community repented and put their faith in Christ, and and they burnt their books of magic. They they burnt their books of spells and hexes. And uh, my uh, the, the the study notes in my Bible says that in today's uh, monetary value, the value of all of those books exceeded six million dollars. It must have been some kind of fire. And in spite of the decidedly pagan environment out of which they had first come to faith in Christ and in which they still lived, and in his letter to the Ephesian believers, he called them to live like Christ. Uh, in a Christ-hating, Christ-denying, Christ-resisting world, to take up the armor of God, to take their stand in the evil day. And it's, it's actually quite surprising to think about this, that, that there's not even a hint in Christ's letter to the church in Ephesus here in Revelation that the believers there had ever compromised with the rampant idolatry and sexual immorality that surrounded them. Why was this church so strong? Perhaps it was because of the influence of godly leadership. The Apostle Paul had planted the church there during his two-and-a-half-year tenure. Uh, He then left Timothy there, his protege Timothy, uh, in Ephesus, who became the pastor of the church. He shepherded the flock there in Ephesus. Later, John arrived, John, John the Apostle, and was the pastor until the time of his exile. And it's thought that after his exile, he actually went back to Ephesus and continued to pastor the church there. Well, stand with me and let's read today's scripture passage together. That's just a little flavor of this city and the church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, 
and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. God's word, you may be seated. Well, in keeping with those words I gave you earlier, and so you can see the way this works, we'll begin with the description. The description, verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I said this last week, but why do I believe that the angels are, in fact, the pastors or elders, the, the messengers of the seven churches? As we saw last week, for two primary reasons. One is, is that they're in the hand of the Lord to be used by him. And that can apply, certainly, to both angels and pastors or, or elders. But secondly, the right hand is, biblically speaking, uh, the right hand of the Lord is a, is a place of protection. It's a place of security. It's a place of refuge. And, and I would just observe that angels never ever are shown to be protected in that way or for that matter to, to need protection. But here's the third reason, which is that the right hand of the Lord in the Bible is always an image of power, of might, of authority. Of authority. And Jesus, we know, is not only the lover of the church, he is the Lord of the church. The seven lampstands represent the seven churches of Asia. The, the, the role of a local church is to bring the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the community it serves and, and to the world at large. Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. See, Jesus not only holds in his hands the leaders of each local church, but he is among the lampstands. The lampstands, again, representing the seven churches. And the specific word John uses pictures Jesus walking around, peripateo. He's walking around among the churches. He's still doing that today. He walks around among the churches. He sees what's going on in the churches. He sees what's going on this morning in this church. He's just walking around. Graphic reminder that Jesus is all about the church. He loves the church. He died for the church. He's Lord of the church. He's coming again for the church. And in the meantime, he's preparing a place for the church. To be a follower of Jesus, then, is to assign high value 
to the church. The community of all for whom Christ died and who look to him as their Savior and Lord. Not just the universal church in general, but the local church in particular. See, if you are actually following the Jesus of the Bible, and not a Jesus of your own fancy or a Jesus of your own making, then you will be as he is, fully devoted to the church. To building it up, to cultivating its health, to praying for it, to advancing its mission here, near, and far. Let me say it again. If you claim to love Jesus, if you love Jesus, you will love his church. And that's something that that the church of today seems to be a little confused about. If you don't love the church, if you're just kind of casual about the church, then you can't claim that you love and are following Jesus. Jesus once said, where I am, there my servant will also be. Here at the start of Revelation and right on through to its end, where we see Jesus, where we see Jesus is in the midst of the lampstands. He's walking around among the churches. And you and I ought to join him there. You and I ought to renew our commitment to being his church, to loving his church. Next comes commendation. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Notice that word or that phrase, I know. The Greek behind it speaks to seeing that becomes knowing. Seeing that becomes knowing. Jesus knows what's going on with the church in Ephesus. He knows what's going on in the other six churches. He knows what's going on in our church today and in every church around the world because his eyes are on the churches. In Genesis 16, he's called El Roi, the God who sees, and he doesn't miss anything. Not a thing. So what does he commend them for? First, he commends them for their works. For their works. Someone asked me, is, is, having read that line, is, is John advocating a works salvation? It's not that we're saved by our works, not at all. On the contrary, we are saved for works. In fact, Paul wrote to this very church in the city of Ephesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then he goes on in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. And I love that word, it's it's the word poiema. I almost always pause here when I see this because I just love this word. We're his workmanship, poema. It's the word from which, which we get our word poem. It means a work of art. It means a masterpiece. Or we are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
But what does Jesus see them doing that elicits his commendation? Not just the works themselves. Certainly the works were important. It's a hardworking church. But he also sees their motives. He sees the intents of their hearts that, that move them to purposeful achievement. This isn't a church that's sitting on their hands. Cowering in the corner because of the evil and the wickedness all around them. Their faith moved them to meaningful ministry, to compassionate service, to assertive mission. Secondly, Jesus commends the Ephesian believers for their discipline. He says, I know your toil and your patient endurance. For them, serving the Lord brought intense spiritual opposition. They had to endure daily hardship that required that they exercise self-discipline and steadfastness in order, to, in order to simply remain faithful to the Lord. And you and I today, we, we experience a little opposition and you know somebody looks at us cross-eyed and we're all offended and all upset. Not so here. They were dealing with real stuff. You ever notice that the purpose to which Paul urged them in chapter, chapter 6 of Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God was, was not that they would mount this, you know, assault, but rather that they would simply stand firm. Stand firm. Notice the repetition of that word stand in these three verses. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. To stand firm. You know, we come to a... a, a passage like that, and, and we go, okay, so, so, what is that? The, the, uh, you know, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What is that? What's that talking about? The Ephesians never wondered. They knew exactly what was being talked about because they were surrounded by demonic activity. Third, Jesus commends them for the soundness of their doctrine. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. This summer in our Q&A series, on one Sunday we took a look at a a current heretical movement uh, active right now here in the United States and around the world known as the New Apostolic Reformation, in which certain men are claiming to be new apostles uh, with the authority of uh, the uh, original apostles, calling others to submit to their leadership and to their authority and teaching a lot of false, false doctrine. And on that particular Sunday, I identified a number of them by name, along with several other false teachers in the American church today. And I, I received some pushback from a couple of people who were present that day uh, who suggested that by naming names, I was doing damage to the unity of the church. And, you know, I I always try, at least try, uh, to give honest and and fair consideration to criticism when I receive it. And this was no exception. I, I thought about what they said and about 
their claim and what they thought the impact was. And, and it broke my heart when one of them announced that they felt they needed to find a new church. Uh, it got me down. I really did. But then I read verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 2. And Jesus commended the church in Ephesus because they could not bear with or tolerate those among them who were evil. It seems that a, a new apostolic reformation was also taking shape in Ephesus in the first century. That there were men who were claiming to be apostles, but who were not. And the believers there put them to the test and found them to be false teachers. They, they tested their doctrine. They tested their lifestyle. Uh, they tested the fruit of their ministries. And, and they found them to be false. And this is the responsibility, my brothers and sisters, of, of each of us uh, as, as Christians individually, and it certainly is the responsibility of Christian leaders in particular to identify, to name, to confront false teachers. To do otherwise would be like to have a wolf in the sheepfold and not and not call it out. Not say, there, there's the wolf right there. You see him? That's the wolf. It would be foolish to do otherwise. And oh, I could go on about that, but I'll stop. Some of you will recall from our series uh, through the Acts of the Apostles that, that in Acts 20, uh, near the end of Paul's third missionary journey, he called together the elders of the church in Ephesus, this church that we're, we're looking at today. And it was going to be the last time he would ever see them. It was a very dramatic, very emotional scene. Um, and among his final words to them were these. Again, these are the elders of the church in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. You know, it seems that Paul was proven right, doesn't it? Uh, those wolves showed up just as he predicted they would. But because the church in Ephesus had been well taught, first by Paul, then by Timothy, then John the Apostle, pretty, pretty cool group of pastors to have for your church, they knew, they were sound in their doctrine. They knew what they believed. They knew why they believed it. And because they understood the stakes that were involved, the high stakes, they wouldn't tolerate the teaching of false doctrine by self-appointed false apostles. Finally, Jesus commended them for their discernment. Their discernment. Revelation 2.6, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, historians aren't sure who these Nicolaitans actually were. One, one theory based on the etymology of the group's name is that they were a group that wanted to draw a sharp line between the clergy of the church and the laity of the church, you know. We super holy people, you know, uh, high up and elevated six feet above contradiction, and then all the rest of you unwashed rabble, uh, right? Um, and, and let's keep a nice distance there. 
The name Nicolaitan is made up of the name of the Greek goddess of victory, Nike, or actually it's pronounced Nike, and, and the word for people, which is Laos, Nike Laos, Nicolaitans. And together that name uh, actually might mean to conquer the laity, to exercise power over the laity. And that sounds kind of good, doesn't it, Evan? Yeah, maybe there's something to that. I don't know. Another theory speculates that the Nicolaitans were Gnostics who who diminished the importance of, of the physical body and so gave permission to Christians to engage in sexual immorality. The fact is we, we simply don't know um, what they taught, what they did, who they were. But notice that Jesus affirmed uh, the Ephesian believers for hating what he also hates. You hate what I hate. In this case, whatever the works of the Nicolaitan, easy for me to say, the works of the Nicolaitans happen to be. See, sound doctrine will always lead to the capacity for spiritual discernment of what is true from what is false. And notice that what Jesus hates is not the Nicolaitans themselves, but their works, the things that they were doing. And may God grant to us sound minds to grasp sound doctrine, spiritual discernment to differentiate between truth and falsehood, and and inward holiness to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. So duty, discipline, doctrine, discernment, you might say that the church at Ephesus had it going on. But then came Jesus' reproof. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And oh man, you know, I have something against you is something you never want to hear Jesus saying to you personally, right? And that kind of make all the blood run right to your socks. And yet, because of sin, it is, of course, inevitable. It's, it's unavoidable. No matter how great our spiritual progress The fact is, until the day that we see Jesus face to face, there's always going to be a need in our lives to respond to his reproof so that we can continue on to real spiritual maturity. What Jesus had against them was that they had abandoned their first love. What did Jesus mean by first love? How, How many of you just remember like your first boyfriend or girlfriend? Any of you? Pleasant thoughts? Maybe, maybe not. You know, you're, you're 12 or 13, and isn't that sweet? That's really sweet. That's not what this is. The first meaning of the word means first in priority. First in priority, first in importance. And for us as Christians, our first priority must always be to love the one who first loved us, to, to put first the one who put us first by dying in our place, bearing our sins on the cross so that we could be forgiven, we could be reconciled to God, we could live the lives that he wants us to live. But Jesus said, you have abandoned your first love. You haven't just drifted away from it. There, there, there's an active, conscious abandonment here. You've abandoned your first love. The word means to push, to push it away, 
to, to neglect it, to Jesus saying, you, you, you have put space between yourself and me. You have so much to commend you. You're doing so many things so very well. But here's the problem. You're no longer doing it out of a sincere, heartfelt love for me. And I wonder if you can relate to that this morning. You're doing all the right things in your Christian life. Uh, you study your Bible. Your, your doctrine is is growing rock solid. You you fellowship with other believers. You attend church regularly. You, you serve in a ministry. You may even tithe. And God bless you if you do. But it, but it's no longer because of your love for Jesus. It's no longer done out of a heart of affection for Him, of love for Him. Your love for Jesus has long since grown cold. Your your prayer life is really lifeless. And if you're honest, you'll admit that it's been a while since you've enthusiastically shared your faith with anyone. 19th century British evangelist and preacher G. Campbell Morgan wrote, no amount of activity in the king's service will ever make up for neglect of the king. See what Jesus really wants from us? is not service devoid of sincerity, but he wants a loving personal relationship with you, with each of us. He wants your heart. Well, I need to land this plane. Jesus gives the Ephesian believers instruction for what to do in order to recover a heart of love for him. And that comes in his instruction. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Pay attention here to three words of instruction. The first is remember. Jesus says, remember from where you have fallen. And it might take some time because because you'll need to take stock of where your relationship with God once was was and where it is now. Give thought to what's changed, where the energy you used to invest in cultivating your love for Jesus has been diverted to other people, other pursuits, other priorities. And when those other investments of time, of emotional capital, of material Resources now dominate your thoughts and your values and your affections. You know, you know that you've abandoned your first love. Second word of instruction is repent. Repentance means a change of mind. If you don't like the word repent, and none of us do, try on the word rethink. Rethink. Repentance means a change of mind. It means a change of intent and purpose that's the result of godly sorrow over how far you've fallen from your first love. It's not merely a change of conduct. You can change your conduct without a change of heart and mind, but it won't stick. You won't be able to endure it. You won't be able to persist in it. You won't be able to keep it up. Ask God to work genuine repentance in your life. The third word is Redo, redo. You might say, I don't, I don't see that word in this passage. Well, it's because I inserted it. It's, it's, it's there in the middle of verse 5 where Jesus says, and do the works you did at first. 
So you're going to ask yourself, well, what was going on back when your active devotion flowed from a heart of love, from a heartfelt love relationship with Jesus? Who were you hanging out with? Who were your influencers? What were you doing? What were the behaviors that fed your genuine passion for Jesus? Jesus is saying, do, there's things to do. As I contemplated Jesus' words here, I remembered something my dad used to say to me from time to time. If if there was something I was supposed to be doing and I was procrastinating on it. He'd ask me, uh, are, are you just going to wait until you can feel your way into that action? Or are you going to act your way into that feeling? In so much of life, right feelings are the product of right actions, not the other way around. As as you invest in in someone else and you're you're committed to them, you're devoted to them, you're you're all about meeting their needs and serving them, your heart's going to go that direction. Where your treasure is, Jesus said there, your heart will be also. It doesn't just apply to money. I also thought of a song from my youth and this is going to date me. It was written by Neil Diamond. It was covered by Barbara Streisand. And then together they recorded it as a duet. It's a song about lost love and the memory of how it once had been. They sang, you don't bring me flowers. You don't sing me love songs. You hardly talk to me anymore when I come through the door at the end of the day. I remember when you couldn't wait to love me. You used to hate to leave me. You don't bring me flowers anymore. Remember the things you did when you were dating or or early in your marriage. And how that other person just dominated your thoughts, dominated your affections, and and, and motivated you to, to do some pretty goofy stuff sometimes, right? Because it was all about him or about her. Jesus says to those who've lost that love and feeling, remember, repent, and redo. Remember, repent, redo. There's another word there in verse 5 that also begins with the letters R-E. It's the word remove. And there's a dire warning here for the church. If the relationship doesn't change, Jesus says he'll remove their lampstand from its place. I'm not entirely sure what that means, but it occurs to me that if the stand on which the lamp rests is removed, the light goes out. They cease to be a church. We don't have to look very far to see churches that are no longer shining the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ into their community. Their light's gone out. They're all about other things now. But the Ephesian church must have responded positively to Jesus' warning because here's the reality. Uh, History indicates that the church at Ephesus after this time experienced a whole new season of vitality and effectiveness. Final element of this letter focuses on reward. Reward. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. What does it mean for us to conquer? The word conquer in Greek is nikeo. It comes from the name of Nike or 
Nike, again, the, the goddess of victory. In the ruins at Ephesus, this relief was found of the goddess. Notice what's in her left hand. It's a laurel wreath. Uh, the crown of victory, the victor's crown in the games. Uh, they didn't put, you know, pendants with medals around their necks in those days. They, they would put a crown of laurel leaves on the head of the victor. And what's in her right hand? What, what do you see there? Palm branch, right? It's a palm branch. In chapter 7 of Revelation, John's going to see a vision of a great crowd of people from every tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're dressed in white robes, and they have in their hands palm branches. Palm branches. And they're crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What does it mean to conquer? What does it mean to gain victory, to overcome? It would be easy to read about, and we will, about those who overcome and somehow convince ourselves that it actually describes someone who is super spiritual. You know, someone who's far beyond us. And they're the overcomers. We're, we're the strugglers. But they're the overcomers. Well, they're the strong ones. We're the weak ones. So, so, man, I'm not an overcomer. I'm just struggling every day. Oh, welcome to the family, first of all. But I understand that that's not what this means at all. In his first letter, First John, the Apostle John wrote, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory, this is the Nikeo that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? See, our faith as Christians is in the one who has overcome on our behalf. Jesus overcame sin and death and the grave for us so that as you and I transfer our trust from ourselves, from our pathetic performances, from from the illusion that we can somehow save ourselves and rest it firmly in Jesus and the victory that he has won for us, we become overcomers with him by virtue of his victory. And the reward for the overcomers is to eat of the tree of life that is in the paradise, the paradiso of God. That word means garden. And there's a distinct cultural touch point here for the residents of Ephesus. Outside of the temple of Artemis, outside that magnificent temple, stood a massive tree that was known as, what do you think? The tree of life. And people would come from all around who, who wanted to just to touch it. There were, there were those who wanted to be healed. There were women who were trying to get pregnant and they would come and touch the tree. Others who wanted other kinds of blessing and, and so they would come and they would just touch, put their hands on the tree of life. 
Here's something we know, don't we? That Satan counterfeits everything God has created and provided for us. Remember that we first read about the tree of life in Genesis chapter 2, that tree that was growing in the Garden of Eden. The tree of life, Genesis 2.9, was in the midst of the garden. Well, surprise, surprise, in Revelation 22, we find the tree that has been relocated to the new Jerusalem downstream from the throne of God. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is the promise to those who overcome that we will one day be present in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, and we will eat the fruit of the tree that gives life eternal. Amen? I want to close with this. I I know I look pretty young, but I I was alive during the Jesus Revolution. And uh, when I was uh, in college, uh, I met a guy named Bob Cull, who had been one of the musicians in the Maranatha movement. And uh, he moved up here to Paulsbo from California. He was a sailor, and he loved to sail. But uh, he he had an album... um, several albums, and, and I wore them all out. They were, you know, vinyl LPs. <laughs> I wore them all out. But, but I want to close with this song that he wrote because it speaks so clearly to what this passage is really all about. It goes like this. Remember, when your faith in God was like a trusting child, you believed he could do just anything. Try to picture it in your mind, all the joy you felt when first you came to find that Jesus loves you enough to die for you. Remember when all it took to give you peace was just to know that God was near and that he'd always stay around. Remember. Well, it's plain to see that a lot of things have changed. You're taking him for granted. Why don't you get back where you started? Return your first love. Or has it been so long you just can't remember? Oh, remember. Try to picture it in your mind the time you looked into his eyes and promised him that you'd be true. You'd try to never let him down. Remember. Well, it's plain to see a lot of things have changed. You're taking him for granted. Why don't you get back where you started? Return your first love. Or has it been so long you just can't remember? Oh, remember. Return your first love. Remember. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this letter. Thank you for this challenge. Thank you for the church in Ephesus and their faithfulness. Thank you that you loved us first. And Lord, I pray that uh, in our (coughs) lives, in our love relationship with you, you would enable us to remember the heights from which we have fallen, to repent, 
That's a redo, to, to do those things which we were doing when we first came to find that you loved us enough to die for us. And Lord, may it be that uh, the lampstand is never removed from Life Point Church, but that in generations to come, Life Point Church, if, if you should tarry, if you should delay, the Life Point Church will be a, a source of light in this community. Help us, Lord, to remember, to repent to redo. In Jesus' name, amen.